You're listening to. Whoa! To Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. I'm one of your hosts, Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu, your other host. And it is time to discuss our March book club pick, What Lies Between Us by Naomi Munawira. Um, it is a well, Rira, you you sold this book to me as a crime mystery novel. Goodreads had it under the genres of mystery and crime. And I've heard people say that it was a murder book. So I was like, okay, <laughs> like, like we haven't read a crime novel in a while. So I, I said, yeah. yeah, let's pick this one. And oh boy, I was surprised. <laughs> I mean, I kept reading, like, when, when does the mystery come in? A, when does the crime come in, too? Because, anyways, we'll, we'll get into that in our discussion. Um, before we get there, though, as always, you can um, chime in um, as you read the books in our book club or as you listen to us discuss your thoughts about the book and anything else in the Asian American lit world um, by joining our Goodreads group. Uh, we have a Goodreads group at goodreads.com. Just search Books and Boba and introduce yourself. It's always great to see um, who is reading along with us. And, and also, since it is April, um, our April book club pick is... Our April book club pick is One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter by Skashi Cole. And uh, if you've already read this book, then our May book club pick is The Leavers by Lisa Ko. So, Man, just a lot of just feel-good titles <laughs> I'm <sorry>. in 2018. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to happen. Um, I am very excited to read the levers, though it's been on my to read list for a while. I know Rira's you, you've already you've already read it, right? Yes, I read it when it first came out. Like I, I think yeah. it was a book of the month pick, so <laughs> I got it through the subscription, and I actually went to the Romans reading with Lisa Ko uh, there, so that was really wow. cool. Yeah, and I think I think I handed you the co- the copy that you have in your in your bookshelf. Yeah. One of our mutual friends, um, Quincy Sura-Smith, who is a fellow potluck podcaster, he hosts the Asian Americana podcast as well as produces the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. He um, came into possession of the book, gave it to Rira. Rira says, I already have this book, and Rira gave it to me. So thank you for saving me some money, although um, I may want to uh, throw Lisa some, some cash with the Kindle version or something. Just buy a second book. Um, Have like a display version <laughs> and then like the other version where you uh, write notes and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so no book news this week. Um, we'll, we're going to save it for our next episode. But um, as always, um, a quick spoiler warning. We are going to be discussing the plot of What Lies Between Us. So if you do plan on reading this book, maybe you should push pause and come back when you're done. Hey, it's Marvin. Um, just wanted to include a quick trigger warning for our upcoming discussion. Um, as you may know, if you read the book, What Lies Between Us contains um, a bunch of really heavy stuff, including sexual harassment, potential rape, child abuse, and um, general trauma. So just wanted to give you a quick heads up if you are sensitive to these topics. Um, they are upcoming. Um, thanks. And with that out of the way... Um, 
first reactions, I guess. Um, what did you think about the book, Rira? It was very unexpected. <laughs> Maybe it's because I, I, like, I was sold on it based on its genre. And I mentioned in the previous episode, but uh, the book is more a slice of life. And it kind of goes through the entire um, childhood and adult life of the main character. And you really get into her head. So it was very, very different from what I thought it would be, but I really liked it. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can read it again for the second time because it's, it's like, it, it was very emotionally draining reading this book. It was really it's, dark. I mean, it's, it's a book about the passing on of trauma, right? Or how trauma stays with you. And especially when it comes to, um, immigrant cultures that come from like traditions that include patriarchal misogyny and stuff so no it's it's a story where like things just keep getting worse and worse for the main character even though on the surface things seem to be going okay right yeah this book has a lot of um it plays with a lot of facades like, uh, mm -hmm. whatever is depicted on page isn't exactly the entire, uh, entire story, I guess. Like, even, even with, like, the lush language of the book, because the prose is really beautiful, but all these gruesome things are happening, uh, <laughs> <laughs> behind the, behind that prose, you know? Like, uh, yeah. like, in the beginning of the book, part one, uh, it takes place in Sri Lanka, and it's and the country is embroiled in civil war, but the narrator's childhood she she talks about like living in this gorgeous house and uh, having yeah, this beautiful she lives a garden. Life of privilege, yeah, right? and yeah. She like she has a very privileged upbringing as a child, um, kind of just detached from the realities of war or, or the ongoing war in the country. Yeah. Like the Civil War, yeah. Yeah, so you have like this image of like a perfect childhood in this beautiful country, but you know that people are dying in very violent manner. And like the same thing with her parents' marriage, like they married out of love. They weren't really in an arranged uh, marriage, I guess. But uh, you find out that the mom has depressive episodes and the dad is even though he is wealthy, um, he still teaches as a professor and he is a reclusive mm -hmm. alcoholic. So this marriage that's supposed to be like this perfect match isn't really perfect either. So you see a lot of like, I mean, I said facades, but I'm not really sure if that's the right word, but it, there's like a lot of contrast to it. <laughs> Yeah, I think like there's a lot of asymmetric information going on, right? Like it, it reminded me a lot of um, our, the other book we read by Celeste Ng, um, Everything I Never Told You, where there's a lot that goes unsaid that like the character knows they should be saying or they should have done, but they're not doing it. Um, and a lot of it is couched in this need to protect yourself from consequences, right? What's really interesting is throughout the entire like first part, it's a lot of it is talking about like traditions and yeah, like the main characters, her parents met and fell in love, like the what we would consider the normal way, but what 
they would consider in Sri Lanka during that time as like a um, a very unconventional style of proposed yes because like he meets her on a bus and he's like i think you're pretty we should married and i mean that's that's kind of considered normal here because people kind of casually converse with the opposite sex but Mm -hmm. like it's in sri lanka it's very the the author definitely um establishes that traditions are very different there and uh there's a very different type of uh, gender guidelines. I'm not sure if that's the right word either, but I mean, they still they still practice dowries and the fact that like females are actually not really not um, desired as children because they you have to pay money to get them married to a good family, and um, they still have a caste system. They you know like a lot of what you don't realize um, until the very end is that there's there's also a lot of economic like trauma going on, right? Yeah. Um, people can't speak out because they're afraid of not being able to provide or being thrown out, and there's a lot of subtle and nuanced ways you get like effed over by by a culture that that dictates whether or not a person is worth anything in the world. Um, but aside from well, that, um, well, I mean, I thought it was really interesting because I didn't realize until the very end that we didn't know the main character's name until the epilogue. Yeah, yeah, um, that actually reminded me of the sympathizer, uh, another book club pick that we uh, we did <laughs> earlier this year. No, it was last year. It was last last May. Last, yeah, last, it was a year ago. Yeah, yeah, because. <laughs> Because even in the sympathizer, it's written kind of in a form of a confession. And midway through, you find out that like not all the information has been relayed to the reader. So the narrator is purposely kind of tricking the reader. And I kind of felt like it was kind of like the same feeling that I got when I was reading the book, because I immediately knew what the crime was like. And I was like, okay, it's just a question of what made her do it. And it just built up from there. I don't know. I thought the prologue set up the the whole story pretty well. And I think, you know, right off the bat that um, I guess this is our first spoiler that the narrator killed her baby. Yeah. And that that part was really hard to read. Yeah. It came so late to in the story. So, like, part of me was, like, reading and saying, well, maybe we'll get off without getting to the bad part because it's almost over. But, you know, nope. it's, it's part of the story. And I guess the whole entire story is written in, like, it's a, like the, the narrator is speaking about it, like, many years after the event. I thought that added a lot to, like, the ability for the narrator to provide perspective yeah. to what was going on. Yeah, I definitely thought that too. I think um, Naomi Munawira did a really good job um, making the perspective, um, like really got into the character's head, you know? Um, Cause towards the end of the novel, when the narrator's uh, like mental uh, clarity kind of dissolves, like you kind of, go through what the character is thinking and the logic isn't really the 
Yeah. Like her reasoning is not logical, but you still understand what's going on in her head that drives her to, uh, to do that horrendous crime. So like, I think she did a really good job, like getting, um, getting the reader inside the head of, of the narrator. Yeah. And it's, I guess it was hard to read also just because it's like, it was a little frustrating for, for me to see the character, see the main character, continually like deny that there's anything wrong but then that's that's what happens right especially in asian communities where this stuff is like yeah it can't be it can't be my head right yeah um there's actually a really uh like it, it's funny how you say that she kept denying uh the truth because there's actually a quote in the book where she says you could pretend certain things weren't happening, even if you had seen or felt them. Everything done can be denied. So, yeah, like literally the character uh, tells the reader that she is purposely trying to deny everything that happened to her and had traumatized her. Um, so I, I do want to talk about the opening chapter because on the first page she says... Um, Here's a secret. In America, there are no good mothers. They simply don't exist. Always there are a thousand ways to fail at this singularly important job. And then the quote goes on and ends with, motherhood is, if anything, the assumption of perfection. So right off the bat, you know that the other, like, other mothers are able to judge our narrator because they haven't failed as badly uh, uh, as a mother as she did. So you, I don't know, like right, right off the bat, I knew that she killed her own child. I don't know about you, Marvin. Right. I think I forgot about that as I was reading. Oh, really? Because part of me thought, did she kill her husband? Like what was the <laughs> the crime? Um, but yeah, like, cause they, they, um, there was a refrain too. They, they go back to that quote at the end of the book as well. Yeah. Um, talking about how, how to be a mother is to, is to fail. Right. I forgot what the exact quote was. Um, I think I actually have, yeah, the, the quote is so like motherhood is broken because in this place to be a good mother is to give yourself completely. It is to erase yourself. This is what I refuse to do. And that's like much later in the book when she actually does become a mother. Um, yeah. That was a theme that repeated itself a couple times throughout the book too. I remember, I think somewhere in the middle, she was talking about how like, I think as a nurse, right. Talking about how mothers look down on you. Like if you reach for the epidural, you failed as a mother. If you like do certain things, you failed as a mother. Like even before the baby is born, there's so many ways to like be a bad mother. And I mean, she even does like she smokes while she's pregnant, right? And yeah, uh, I I don't remember the exact quote, but there is a passage in the book where um, the narr narrator says that when babies are born, there is like so much going on before they're even born, and when they're born, they they really don't stand a chance because all the grownups have played their parts and know the game by heart. And like the baby yeah. just kind of like trying to catch up. And it, it, it says something about how 
uh, like you said, Marvin, trauma can get passed on through generations. And I guess like with the narrator, when she does become a mother, a lot of a lot of her insecurities and her um, a lot of the symptoms of her trauma, it, it kind of traces back to her own mother who had depressive episodes, had really wild mood swings and uh, just how in the narrator's childhood, she kind of had to tiptoe tiptoe around that. Yeah. I mean, she, another thing that gets repeated throughout the book is the lessons that she picks up from observing her mother, from observing her cousin and society. And like, these are lessons that she internalizes and it, it, it all adds up to basically who she becomes, the type of person she becomes. Like there's, there's when she was, you know, trying to play in front of her mother's room while her mother was, you know, having one of her depressive episodes and getting smacked around for it. And she, that's how she learns the, um, the lessons of silence. Um, later when she has her own daughter um, and she totally ignores her cries for, hours and so the baby learns to that like crying doesn't work yeah and um i mean with the with the narrator uh because she can't approach her mother uh as easily because of her uh mood swings i think that's definitely made her more secretive i guess like less forthcoming about um, about like what's going on with her in her own life, which kind of, and then we get to like the end of part one where uh, it's revealed that uh, the, the narrator uh, got sexually abused as like an 11 year old. Yeah. By, um, by who she thinks is the, is the servant. And I don't know if you got like did they um so at the end of the book they her mother they her mother reveals that she knew about it uh, but couldn't say anything because um, she was from a poor family and if she, she had tried to do something about it she was afraid she would have been thrown out and that's where the like the economic anxiety comes in um, where like you want to protect your daughter but you also want to be able to provide for your daughter and so you choose to ignore it hopefully hoping that it'll stop but who was it that was actually molesting her i think it was her father that's what i got out of the okay. final part that's what i thought too but then why would her father bring a gun over to samson's place because i thought um so that's that made me think it might have been like another family member but i mean like another thing is like uh the narrator <laughs> Should we still keep calling her narrator? Because we do get her name at the end, which is Ganga. But uh, I mean, I'm just gonna say the narrator yeah, because too, like, <laughs> uh, it seems more seems more more fitting, direct. Yeah. Um. Yeah, like the narrator is unreliable. Her memories aren't as clear as she thinks they are, and I would say like. I would say like some memories that she kind of reminisces about, there are some holes in it. So maybe that's why it was a little bit confusing 
at the revelation that her father was her abuser instead of Samson. Mm. It's a it's a common symptom it um among among people who have gone through such hard trauma uh, to have like false memories and to have uh, some forms of hallucinations because throughout the book she she kind of gets paranoid she thinks that Samson is by her window by her bed even though she's in a totally different country um, yeah I, th- I think a lot of what part one sets up is um, a that she it, it sets up her initial trauma right it was both the sexual abuse as a child and also the death of her father who was who was like the was not a rock but like someone who stabilized her life in sri lanka right because after her father passed away um she had to they had to move because the family wanted the house back because her, her mother didn't come from a rich family and, and because they're just women now they couldn't be part of a um a rich family anymore yeah uh, but it also sets up the like all the things that run through her head about what it means to be a good daughter based on the lessons she learned from you know observing her parents and observing society right like and like you said like a, the biggest lesson she learns is to like how to keep secrets right because she sees that her mother doesn't talk about it so she won't talk about it like that's the first block leading up to her crime I mean, I can, I can see why she would keep all of that a secret, especially with her upbringing. Because uh, with her mom, she could never really talk to her because she was always anxious whether or not her mom was going to accept her, accept her love that day. Because her mom could be like making crepes with her one day and kind of be like the perfect mother. And then the next day she won't get out of bed and will get snippy. Um, whenever she hears a sound outside her door. So I think the narrator, um, because she has this anxiety of not, not being able to receive love, not, not being able to receive stable love, I guess she tries Mm -hmm. to hang on to, uh, the love that she can get. And that kind of makes her, um, keep those secrets because it's the fear of oh if I told them that I was sexually um, abused as a child like would they still love me the same as they do now yeah and I think that comes from the like the cultural value of a woman being her virginity and her cleanliness right she was saying you always hear about the aunties and the other like women talking about girls who um, went bad, right? Or girls who, even she even she even like later on in the book, uh, later on in the book when Daniel takes um, permanently, she's separated from Daniel and Borian. She talks about her being, well, I guess I turned out to be one of those ladies that you know men leave when they you know find something better, which wasn't the case. Like I think that was another frustrating thing. Like she kept like her her anxiety comes out in like jealousy too. And like, yeah, like you can see where it comes from, but it's just so also really irrational. I think this book really 
really dissects the the ugliness of uh of being a mother because honestly like i think mothers get harsh the like receive the most harsh judgment in, in our society and and it's and she does and she mentions this in the book as well how you know when when a, a woman gives birth she's expected to get her bikini body like like almost immediately after otherwise she's a failure and yeah there's just so many like there's no way to win you know so yeah like i can see her the reason why she had such low self esteem because she's going through her head and she's like, oh, what did I do wrong? Like, why am I not good enough for my husband? And what's wrong with me? And she's, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's just like, these are things that she's seen on magazines and been told and, and, and heard yeah. from aunties. So it's already ingrained in her DNA kind of. I mean, that also brings us to part two, right? Which is her her teenage and college years in the States, where she is pretty much indoctrinated in, like, female expectations from an American lens on top of her Sri Lankan roots, um, which is all about whiteness and, like, um, popularity and being rebellious. And you see her getting bombarded with like the white standard of beauty. It, like what I found really interesting is like we've read novels with the whole like immigrants coming to the country. And what was really interesting about how this novel uh, tackled that theme was she's trying to assimilate so she can like kind of throw away the identity that she had in Sri Lanka where she's, she's just like, Oh, I can be, a new person, that person who was traumatized by this horrible thing. Like I can leave her behind in this continent. I can just deny that it didn't happen. So her assimilation is, is really interesting because there's like a, another motive to it. And there's actually this really uh, beautiful quote that um, I wrote down and it's right before she leaves Sri Lanka for um, America And it goes, how can I do this? How can I leave everything known? How can I leave language and belonging and familiar faces, faces that look like mine? How can I leave this patch of earth that has been mine? Samson taught me once that the hydrangea blooms in a range of shades, depending on the soil it sinks its roots into. From faintest pink to darkest night blue, the flower reflects the acidity of its patch of earth. How am I different? This person I am, will I, will I be killed in the transition across the planet? What new person will emerge in that other soil? So I think mm. that passage, even though I didn't read it as eloquently as it was written, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, th- it, I think it really beautifully sums up the, the feelings that a lot of um, new immigrants to this country feel about leaving their, yeah. their motherland. And actually, she mentions how how she's she's like, oh, people are making fun of my British English, and I can't imagine people coming to this country and not being able to speak English. Like, yeah, <laughs> and she did some like low key shade with throwing like, well, we got it from the British, kind of like 
yeah, we got colonized. What? Um, which, which, which is, is like a really clever line. Like, it's also funny because, like, we trauma is a really big theme in this book, right? And it's not just like the mm-hmm. main character who um, who is who has been traumatized. It's also Sri Lanka as a country, because yeah, yeah, like the British uh, coming and uh, teaching them to be quote unquote civilized. And we hear we we get this like brutal story about um, like one of the one of the queens being forced to smash her children's severed heads in a giant mortar. And Uh like that story gets mentioned multiple times in, in this book. And it's just like, oh, yeah, like mothers killing their children or mothers doing terrible things to their children that can be traced back to my ancestor or traced back into my country's history. This kind of, this kind of like violence that we put upon each other. It's, it's always been there and it's just like continuing on with each generation. And like Sri Lanka keeps coming back to traumatize the family. Like when um, her uncle dies in an accident um, and pretty much drives a wedge between her and the only friend she had, her cousin Darcy. Like, if every part of this book is about, like, a phase in her life where she had, like, of gaining and losing friendships, too. And people come in and out of her life. It's funny how you mentioned her uncle going back and, and like, dying in an accident because he died in a monsoon as well. And uh, then their yeah. father also died during a monsoon. And um, there's this there's this quote where the narrator says, "Sooner or later, we pay for the woundings of our ancestors, because sometimes family isn't a place of safety. Sometimes it's a secret wound, and it comes back every so often." And yeah, um, I mean, death by water related causes is a another theme that uh, runs throughout the story because, I mean. So she tries to kill her daughter at the end with sleeping pills, but in the end, it's the it's the bay that carries her daughter away. Like she tries to like commit suicide uh, by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, like water related death is is the leading cause of death for characters in this book. I mean, her name is Ganga, and it literally means river. So. It was a motif in this novel. <laughs> yeah, so let's go back to part two and like her uh, assimilation into American culture. Um, I know you were you were um, interested in talking about the uh, how they had to they had to wear, how they had to change clothes at school. <laughs> they they had to wear like clothes underneath their uh, their like approved clothing by their mothers because they're like, oh, girls shouldn't wear short skirts and uh they shouldn't talk to boys and it's just like all these um just like the stark contrast between the two cultures was i mean it was entertaining to read but also like like it it was very surprising Mm -hmm. um like darshi teaching uh the narrator how to shave her legs because yeah. Yeah, that that wasn't something that people did in Sri Lanka and I think I think they're teenagers in the 80s. I don't think they're actually 
like it's I don't think it's an actual like contemporary time. Yeah, they're talking about Duran Duran and they're talking about Wham. So this is definitely the eighties. So it does make sense with with her yeah. need to or desire to assimilate to want to be um, <laughs> not not brown and. I mean, yeah. Well, she was saying how she moved. So she moved to Fremont, California, which these days it's very brown. But she was saying it was before that happened. She like specifically says this is before, um, like seeing Indians, Pakistanis were was commonplace in in the Bay Area. And an interesting um, passage is her kind of her saying that when she was in Sri Lanka, she was actually considered light. People complimented her lightness. But here she is just dark. Colorism. Hmm. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, the main conflict in part two comes when her, like her and her cousin, who were best friends growing up as teens, start to drift because of, um, because of her uncle's death and because of her, I guess, unwillingness to be there for her cousin, right? And that was a big, big thing. Like, she didn't know what to say, nor that she wanted to, like, she didn't want to be involved. Yeah, like, it It was kind of like she was avoiding Darcy because it remind her uncle's death reminded her of her father's death. And I think, I think the real moment where their connection got severed was when Darcy told the narrator that she was getting married. And it was yeah. an arranged marriage and she was doing things the traditional way instead of, um, you know, doing it the American way, which is to find someone. Which is what up. she taught. Yeah, what she taught the narrator, right? She was the one that taught her how to rebel, how to how to get away with wearing different clothes. Yeah, and Darcy, and, like, American, whereas uh, yeah. our narrator is an immigrant. <laughs> so it's, like, I thought that was really interesting, too, because... And how much she felt it was like a betrayal, right? She felt really, really hurt yeah. by Darcy's decision. It, it, yeah, it's her marriage was so different from the narrator's marriage, which was like through the American way. And even the wedding was completely <laughs> different. Um, like our narrator, she didn't wear the traditional uh, like wedding robes of her motherland. She... Yeah, like she was like she decided to wear like a tradition, like a quote unquote Western. Yeah, like traditional. White yeah, dress. like a stark white dress that her fiance bought her. That was that was a little bit weird for me too. I was just like, why did he buy her a dress? That's it's a different. Time well, here's that. another. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's another. I mean, Darcy's getting Darcy deciding to get married is another um, way that that like economic issues affect decisions that are made, right? Because even their mothers, right? She was talking about how back when it was just her mother and her sister, her aunt, her sister had to get married to her uncle to provide for her mother, to provide because it was just them in the family. And now that the father is gone, Darcy, she's marrying a doctor so that she can provide for her mother because that's how their family, that's how their relationship works. Yeah. It was also um, with uh, our narrator. She kind of wins wins the jackpot in the immigrant American dream, right? She get, she gets a scholarship to UC Berkeley, a prestigious college, and uh-huh. she 
and she gets like a really stable job um, saving lives as an ICU nurse. And, and like to a certain extent, like she, she marries a white guy and (laughs) who turns out to be, who becomes a famous artist. Yeah. So it's, I mean, essentially, on paper, she's set. Yeah, on paper, she's (laughs) set. But um, it's just weird because she she went through this really unconventional marriage. I mean, unconventional compared to uh, Sri Lankan culture. But Uh but like Darshi, like it seemed like she had a pretty satisfactory marriage. She like in the end of at the end of the book you realize you you learn that she has three children and she's like she has like this great life even though uh, well that was the other refrain from the book in defense of arranged marriages saying that you know love can fade but a marriage is a partnership so if you treat it as a partnership eventually things will make sense and that was what you know the I forgot who said that, but it's was, it was probably some like some auntie or some some like, auntie. <laughs> um, but that was kind of uh, another theme of this book is you know relationships um, that are based in love, and I mean that was um, that's the main conflict in the third part, right? So the third part is after she graduates in Berkeley, she becomes a nurse. And meets Daniel, who is um, a who's a painter, who's like an art dealer or an art handler before he actually yeah. uh, gets discovered and becomes a San Francisco art rock star. And she pretty much gets him through his lean years, right? His years of as a struggling artist, having to deal with, you know, her mother saying, "How's your friend and his art." And, uh, um, super relatable, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and you learn that she like falls deeply in love with him, but then the love also brings out like the worst sides of her sometimes. And that this, this is when she starts. You know, she's always had like PTSD uh, episodes that manifest as nightmares, but this is when she starts. Um, kind of acting out right like smashing glasses and like yeah i would say like driving off i would say like her hallucinations of seeing samson uh at the corner of her eye definitely increases it becomes her nightmares become more lucid um and like with with daniel she she hadn't been with anybody else before Daniel. Like she was pretty much committed to being single and not having a love life. She just wanted to solely dedicate herself to a career because I, because I personally think that she thought that she would never be loved because of what happened to her because she wasn't, um, I guess for the lack of a better word, quote unquote, pure. Yeah. She goes through like imposter syndrome, right? Like on paper, she has a great life, a great boyfriend, like things are going well, but she never, like she's constantly afraid 
that especially like dating a white guy like she's constantly afraid that like people will discover her secret and like similar to like after she moved to the states like she is in constant fear of people seeing her as a monster which is what she sees herself as right yeah like she she even mentions in a passage that like it feels like there's a minotaur inside like the labyrinth of her mind there is something crawling within her like i think i think she uses the word waterweed and uh like in the first part of the novel you realize that after her assault after the assault was um after the assault happened she started self-harming herself and yeah those tendencies i don't know if they completely return when she becomes a mother but it it definitely takes a darker turn like those um dark thoughts that she had as a child has now like she carried it with her into adulthood it's i would say like this book is about how like trauma it just sinks into your bones it just becomes like it's like here is like worst case scenario of like what this stuff does to you like it, it's just like with her mother like the narrator's mother it's like oh you have a broken mother who gives birth to a broken child and the broken child grows up to becoming a broken mother and it just propagates you know and it's and and, and there is a quote in the book that i i thought was striking and it was shame is female shame is the price i must pay for this body and yeah, like our narrator, she is always fighting with this shame inside her, even though like she on paper has a good life and has like a great potential to live a great life. But um, because- yeah, that says something about just how society views, views women, right? The pressure that society in general puts on being female right as a, as a female you're expected to be all these things like yeah like it's it's really heartbreaking i guess like it's it's really sad that motherhood is kind of defined on like on like sacrificing your entire being right like you have to like give up everything about yourself to provide for your child and with fatherhood it it's not I mean, personally, I don't think it's held up to that high of a standard. Um, yeah, I mean, you can see it in like a lot of aspects of like even um, with you know the current Me Too movement and what it draws from. You know, like the different expectations of men and women in the office, even you know um, expectations of you're supposed to be this one way. And if you're not, then you're a failure as a, a woman or as a person. She in fact suffers from these expectations from two cultures. So chapter three, well, part three goes through, um, goes up to her deciding to get married to Daniel. And then part four is about her having her child, um, Bodhi Ann, who um, actually is like, Daniel and the narrator 
weren't planning to be parents ever. But then, um, but then like she finds out that she's pregnant and she is actually on, like she actually agrees to go to an abortion clinic because uh, what did you think? What did you think about that chapter where he tries to, where he convinces her to like, yeah, we're not ready for this. Oh, which part he's kind of being because like first it was first it was like oh we can't handle being parents yeah the part where he actually yeah what what did you think about that part where he actually tries to convince her like before he has a change of mind when he's like yeah we can't handle this baby um i mean (laughs) uh, i'm gonna sound like a terrible person for saying this but i was like i was like okay yeah that's a logical decision (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, but at the end he um he stops her right before she goes through with it um because like and so they have a child yeah they have a child and like honestly like being a parent is is like a really big decision it's probably the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life because with a child uh the responsibilities and like the number of hours that you have to care for this kid, it doesn't just go away when they're 18 years old. Like you are a parent forever. So it's like, it is a really I mean, hard decision, you know? So that's why I was like, okay, yeah, if you're not ready to yeah. care it, then ultimately seeing how the book ends, that probably would have been the best way to go. <laughs> um, like, it, Cause yeah, like, Becoming a parent, it recenters your life, right? You're no, you're no longer the center of your own life once you become a parent, and that's something that the narrator wasn't ready for. Yeah, like once you become a parent, you're not a victim anymore. So <laughs> it's yeah, like I, I, I feel really terrible for for even thinking that maybe the narrator would have been better off without her child, but. At some point, like in the book, she says, I love my child, but I don't like motherhood. And it doesn't mean that she's a bad mom, like, like nothing like that. And it doesn't mean that she doesn't love her kid. But with her PTSD and with her not getting help for it, like, there were a lot of things. It's a bad, it's a bad deal. It's a bad comment. Yeah. I mean, you, you start to see the cracks form when she starts, like, ignoring the kid for long periods of time and also how she sees um like she she fluctuates between seeing them as like a, a a family unit and seeing the baby as an obstacle between her and her husband and that's i think that's when you start seeing like oh this is this is going this is starting to get dark i mean it's already dark but this is going down like a dark path now but like but I like I'm not a mother, but like I can understand like not loving your child twenty four seven. Of course, there's going to be moments when you have some sort of resentment to your child. Not not like hatred, but it's just like oh, if you like, I wish I was able to do these things, but I'm being tied down, or because um, one thing or the other but what did you think about the birth scene because oh, that's yeah, where girl. like <laughs> that was i thought that was like really darkly humorous because she's like i am not yeah. going to get an epidural i am going to 
give birth as like as my mother and her grandmother like did before me and she, I think at some point she even entertained the thought of getting like a midwife but Daniel was yeah. just like no we're gonna take you to the hospital like I want you to like what if something goes wrong I want you to be surrounded by surgeons and and clean hospital sheets and like during her labor she she's in so much pain that she does get the epidural yeah <laughs> um but yeah the whole scene it reminded me of um listening to like people describe how like having kids is probably society's biggest joke on you because everyone says it's oh the, it's the magic of birth and it's such a great experience but the actual experience is horrifying <laughs> and the actual like first year of parenthood is exhausting and like you kind of feel like yeah like the world played a joke on you this isn't the best thing ever i i thought it was really funny when uh she was like mentioning how um like mommies in the playground would kind of tell their battle stories being like oh yeah. boy i was in labor for like 72 hours and 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 they're just kind of like showing up on each other on like how much pain they went through in their labor <laughs> and this is like yeah and then yeah after having the baby um her daughter turns out to be extremely fair and that bothers her too Right, and that causes her problems when she takes her out, because people think she's the nanny. And yeah, it really did like um, all of like the all of her thoughts on have on being in an interracial relationship and how like Bodhi doesn't really look much like her, and she yeah. can pretty much pass for white, and that was something that she wanted when she was growing up. In, in high school and wanting to be like the other white girls and being being like able to belong easily. Yeah. For his part, I feel like Daniel did a pretty good job of trying to make things work, right? Like he wanted to learn how to eat with his hands, like you no know, Sri Lankans do. He, you know, defended her in front of like I had my concerns when he was introduced especially when yeah because he had that like he had that japanese um print on his wall yeah so was just, like, i was like oh, oh. Fever, dude. Yeah, like, oh that's, that's a red flag right there and also just um uh just just like i was like okay like is this relationship gonna be him kind of like being a weeaboo in a way like <laughs> Like, yeah. is it going to be like that or is it going to be um, it, or is it going to be like in everything I never told you where uh, race is kind of out of the conversation and they do their best to just uh, ignore that part of the narrator's life. So, yeah. But like it was very like ple- I was very pleasantly surprised that he he was just like, yeah, like teach me how to eat the way that you do cook me these food. And I want to know more about your family and your childhood. And he was, he seemed like really interested in her life. And I guess that makes and he it more was, tragic that she didn't confide in him on all the things. that. She yeah. Did. There was that one passage where he was explaining, he was like talking about his past and about the big break that didn't happen in New York. Right. And 
um, she was kind of seeing that like it seems like he doesn't live with any shame. That was her takeaway from from the conversation. I think that's again the key thing is like she she lives with so much shame. Yeah, it seemed like another way that she was not good enough for him or in her mind, right? She was like not because she carried so much shame that she was just another taking like the I I don't deserve this stuff box. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that seems to be a recurring trait because like with pretty much all of the relationships that she's had, she's kind of been desperate for love and when she finally gets Daniel who turns out to be a very understanding and loving partner, she thinks that she's not good enough because she has been so desperate for all those years. Um, yeah. And I mean, it, it all comes to a head at the end where she does the thing. She kills her daughter. <laughs> that was, that was really um, hard to, to read. Like actually yeah. before that happens, like she, like she calls her mom in Sri Lanka because like she's having, you know, she's separated from Daniel because of her mental state. And, yeah. and her mom was just like, Oh, like, like, I'm so sorry. Like, like maybe, like maybe I should have like done something about, about it. And maybe you wouldn't be living with this trauma, with this shame. Maybe things would be different. And, yeah. and that's when it's revealed that like, like, for the first time, the narrator mentioned Samson, and her mom's just like, "What are you talking about? It wasn't Samson. It was like it was somebody else." And we kind of get the hint that it was her dad, and that's kind of like that kind of becomes the catalyst for um, for her like killing her daughter because she's yeah again, paranoid. She's like, "Oh my god, if my dad did this to me, then..." Like Daniel could do do this to our daughter, and then she'll have to live with all the shame that I had to to carry my entire life. So, um, yeah, she did mention that she started seeing all of Daniel's mo- moments with her as with suspicion now, and it's you know, and like yeah, because Daniel took Bodhi away because he was concerned for her safety, right? Yeah, and at the time, um, the narrator, she thought that maybe he was seeing another woman, maybe it was, like, another white woman, and she kind of had this fantasy thinking about, like, him leaving her for another white woman, and that white woman becoming Bodhi's stepmother, and then them living as, like, a happy family unit without, like, a a trace of her in... in in their lives and yeah like a lot of insecurities a lot of um that was like yeah that was a really tough just chapter because that all happens in one chapter like her complete breakdown and like after she jumps off the bridge and seeing her like realize that oh what have i done yeah like it's like a moment where she thinks that she's protecting her child by doing by by killing her child but then like once she does the deed it's almost as if like claire she becomes (laughs) yeah she's like oh like this like what have i done like this this is way worse than what i thought it would be 
yeah, it, it was yeah. a really hard uh, chapter to read, um, particularly because Bodhi was so trusting of her mom, right? Because her mom gives yeah. her um, orange juice um, that's drugged with sleeping sleeping pills, and she says, "Oh, the orange juice tastes funny." And her mom's like, oh, like drink all of it and be a good girl. And because her daughter, she's used to seeing the narrator's uh, episodes. She's just like, oh, I should just listen to what my mom says because I want mom to be happy instead of sad. Yeah. And which is yeah. similar to how she was as a child. Yeah. And that's what made it really hard for me to read. Yeah. yeah. It was so, I don't think I can read this book a second time, but, but like it, it was, it was a, it was a journey. It was a beautifully written book. Yeah. And God. <laughs> I mean, there was a, there was a, something of an Easter egg in it. Um, Goodreads um, member Julie points out um, that she does. Um, I think in chapter three, um, she mentioned someone saying, oh yeah, Sri Lanka, that was in that book. Um, island of uh, something something. Island of, island of a thousand years. And then she was like, w- "Like, how could someone in America possibly know what it's like to to be in Sri Lanka?" Um, which um, Island of a Thousand Mirrors? It was Naomi Munaria's previous book. So good, good catch there. I don't know. Like, I I thought that was pretty funny. Um, also, <laughs> I was just like imposter syndrome much, but. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, I, I think it was just like a funny Easter egg thing. Um, yeah. And I guess, I guess because we've been talking for a while, um, I wanted to ask you um, what you thought about Darcy's reappearance at the end of the novel. I mean, I ended up seeing this story as like a, like a character studying someone who goes through all this trauma, but never, this is, a reality for a lot of people living with, you know, PTSD from childhood trauma slash growing up in patriarchal misogynist cultures, but also showing that it's not like, I think Darcy's even from the beginning of part two, she's her character has always been a contrast to of the narrators. Her life is literally like the opposite of her cousins. It's the opposite, but um I mean they both lose a parent and they are Yeah. Yeah, I mean like they're But they go both go through similar similar um trials, I guess, traumas. except for yeah. yeah. Darcy not being a victim of sexual abuse, but yeah, it's kind of like an alternate version of uh Ganga. It's just like, oh, this is how she could have been if all all this terrible stuff wasn't weighing on her. So in the end its point is to show that like a lot of who the main character was was a cause of unintended consequences of a lot of good intentions, which is a theme that we've seen again and again. I wonder how because neither of us are our parents, I wonder um, <laughs> how how like yeah. people who are parents like I, I wonder what their thoughts were on this book because I'm sure I would love to hear your thoughts if you're a parent please comment on our goodreads forum um those of you who have read the book yeah i i am very curious because i i i feel like i i'm very cynical about parenthood so my <laughs> all of my comments so far in this episode has just been like yeah motherhood 
sounds like it sucks. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, why would anybody want to be a mom? But that's just me being yeah. cynical. Um, I I would love to hear uh, you guys' thought, thoughts on the book yeah. if you're a parent. <laughs> um, I guess let's wrap up. Um, any final thoughts about the story? Um, final thoughts. I, I just, the prose was so beautiful. I had to write down a lot of quotes and I've only said a few of them in this episode because then this episode would be like two hours long, <laughs> but like just the way like everything was written so uh, crisply and beautifully, like I, like I really enjoyed reading it and the fact that it was written beautifully softened the blow a little bit whenever I read the uh, more horrific parts yeah i feel the same way it's such a beautifully written story even when things get real dark like it's gonna stick <laughs> with us for a couple of years yeah um but yeah I, I see why people recommended it and i see why you know some um i think a twitter user mentioned it was like her favorite book of 2017 well that'll do it for our discussion of what Lies Between Us uh, by Naomi Munarira. Um, thanks again for listening in. And if you have um, your own thoughts you want to get off your chest, um, please move on to our Goodreads forums. Uh, we have a thread going with um, discussion on this book. And like Rira and I said, we'd really love to hear from you if you are a parent and have read this book, uh, what your thoughts are. Yeah. Uh, with that said, again, our April book club pick is One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter by Scotchy Cole. Um, I read maybe the first 50 pages of it and like, I'm so glad we're reading this after uh, What Lies Between Us, because it's much lighter. Oh, great. Because that title seems pretty, it's pretty dark. It's, it's, it's lighter because there's comedy, but um, but a lot of the topics are serious. It talks about, um, like, having anxiety and being a woman of color and uh, racism. So, yeah, there are heavy topics, yeah. but it's delivered in a very comedic way. So I'm really glad we're reading this for april and uh, <laughs> i'm excited and for may we're reading the levers by lisa ko uh the paperback should be out by the end of april so um it should be available in bookstores by then great and as always you can subscribe to our podcast on apple Podcasts, stitcher google play music spotify and wherever you find your podcasts um if you enjoy listening to us talk about book stuff um, please give us a rating review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And um, please um, recommend us to any of your friends who want to get into reading books, especially books by Asian and Asian American authors. Also, feel free to recommend books to us because like, I like finding new books and adding them to my collection. So I guess maybe that's more of a yeah. personal goal for me. So I, I guess like hit me up on Twitter and recommend books to me. Awesome. So for Books and Boba... Um, thanks for listening and we'll see y'all next time. All right. Bye. Keep reading. This episode of Books and Boba was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited by Marvin Yue. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian American community. If you like this episode of Books and Boba, you should also check out the Potluck Podcast Saturday School. 
Saturday School is a pop culture history podcast where hosts Ada Sang and Brian Hu explore the history of Asian American films. You can listen to Saturday School and the other great program of the Potluck Collective by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. Mm-hmm.